Previously on Flying the Line, ALPA President Hank Duffy confronts the challenges of addressing pilot seniority in the event of airline mergers. This podcast is brought to you by the Airline Pilots Association. ALPA supports its pilots through a variety of resources, including Airline Pilot, the official journal of the Airline Pilots Association International. It's delivered to your doorstep every month, and many articles are posted online at alpa.org magazine. You can download the PDF there to read at your leisure, too. Make sure you stay up to date on your association with Airline Pilot Magazine. Welcome to the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association, a bridge from the book Flying the Line, Volume 2, by George E. Hopkins. Chapter 17, National Politics and Mergers, The Election of 1986 and Beyond, Part 2. Through the years, ALPA has struggled considerably to devise a way to resolve the merger policy dilemma. Many have fruitlessly sought a magic bullet that would provide a painless solution to mergers. By the late 1980s, final offer arbitration took its place as the latest in a long line of potential solutions to merger disputes. Under this scenario, the arbitrator would be obligated to accept either one or the other pilot group's final offer. This would put a premium on reasonableness, assuming that the arbitrator was knowledgeable enough to recognize it, and perhaps bring the two groups into actual agreement. But in any case, ALPA itself would be spared. All of this did Hank Duffy no good, however, in the Northwest Republic merger, which took an inordinate amount of time to resolve. Inevitably, Duffy became the lightning rod for the Republic pilot's anger. Part of the problem was that the arbitrator, Thomas Roberts, took so long to make his decision. During the three years, from 1986 to 1989, while Roberts sorted out his options, the merged airline had to operate with cumbersome fences, which kept the two pilot groups artificially separate, much to management's irritation. Then, when Roberts finally made his decision, he departed from tradition by arranging the list by date of hire, but using a career expectation rubric with fences that muted its effect. Under terms of the Roberts' rights, senior Republic pilots, no matter what their pre-merger seniority, would be fenced off from bidding up to Northwest's wide-body equipment, under certain circumstances, until the career expectations of some Northwest pilots had been met. Put simply, this meant that until the group of Northwest pilots who had been hired with the career expectation of becoming wide-body captains had been met, they would have first bidding rights. Since most Republic pilots had hired on with career expectations no higher than the left seat of a DC-9, they would have to wait for their turn at larger equipment, in some cases until 2006. This extended fence was only one of several bitter disputes between the Red Tail, original Northwest, and Green Book, former Republic, pilots. A variety of details, such as dispute resolution over the B-757-767 type reading, resulted in yet another flurry of lawsuits 
by everybody on all sides with multiple targets. Alpha, the opposition pilot group, former managements, and arbitrator Roberts himself. Each group had grievances over specific aspects of Roberts' award. One other aspect of the Northwest Republic merger deserves comment. In their leadership choices, each pilot group selected men better known for aggression than persuasiveness. The Northwest pilot group chose Alpa's original dog of war, Bob Keyes, whose nickname of Dr. Strike was a recognition of his skill at confrontation. Perhaps to counter Keyes, the Republic pilot group selected his mirror image, E.J. Lawless, for a prominent role. Neither would win any shrinking violet contests. The carrier's economic burden of retraining crews, one additional reason for an arbitrator imposing fences, played little role in Robert's original arbitration. In mitigation, Republic pilots who were most affected by these fences actually got paid the same as if they were flying the larger aircraft from which they were fenced off, thanks to their ALPA contract. It was actually a fairly generous reward for sparing the company, in some cases, the expense of upgrade training for pilots nearing retirement. But many Republic pilots blamed ALPA for betraying the guidelines contained in the merger policy. Actually, the Northwest Republic merger did no such thing. The Republic pilots could see only that the fence agreement violated the date of higher priority. But ALPA's merger policy had always subordinated straight date of hire slash length of service to the overriding necessity of preserving jobs and other considerations. By 1988, to break this fixation on date of hire, ALPA's revised merger policy would explicitly state that the application of these criteria should not preclude the consideration or use of any integration method which could balance the equities. The Northwest Republic merger undoubtedly made the former Republic pilots feel less like second-class citizens, but it did not violate ALPA's policy, and in the way of such things, the actual injury they experienced wound up being magnified in the retelling. Smarting over arbitrator Roberts's handling of the merger, Republic's pilots abandoned Hank Duffy, for whom they had cast all 1,684 of their votes by unit rule in 1982. Four years later, they would cast 1,726 unit rule votes for Tom Ashwood. With the TWA-Ozark merger generating similar stresses, Duffy suddenly found himself facing a growing and unexpected coalition of pilot groups who blamed him for the perceived shortcomings of ALPA's merger policy. Lawless admitted that he thought the pilots unfairly expected ALPA to fix things that are really not fixable. He had flown with former Eastern and Braniff pilots, and while they were thankful to have jobs, that underlying resentment directed at ALPA didn't seem to go away, and that was also true of mergers. But Lawless, a former Marine pilot who began flying with Bonanza in 1956, despite his philosophical commitment and long service to ALPA, also felt bitter about the way his Green Book Republic pilots were treated in the merger with Northwest's Red Tails. He blamed Northwest's management for a pattern of discrimination, which the original Northwest pilots encouraged, 
against former Republic pilots. Lawless also believed Duffy ignored it to gain the political support of the Northwest Pilot Group in 1986. When combined with Tom Ashwood's undeniable brilliance as a campaigner, the festering animosities brought on by the avalanche of mergers made the election of 1986 a toss-up. Ashwood had made identifying with the larger trade union movement a centerpiece of his campaign, even before pilot opinion began to shift on the issue in the 1980s. He was a master at anecdotally praising unionism in principle, calling on pilots to not only play a role in the AFL-CIO, but to lead it as well. While Duffy's aristocratic bearing and former role as a Republican Party county chair made him an unlikely labor leader, no one could doubt his commitment by 1986. Spurred not only by Ashwood's criticisms, but also the anti-labor bias of the Reagan administration, Duffy began to emerge as a conspicuous spokesman for the AFL-CIO, something ALPA's leaders had historically been wary of. Duffy told the May 1986 executive board that the catalyst for ALPA's transition from an elitist association to a labor union had been communications. He added that in 1982, he told everybody who would listen that the association needed communications across company lines. If that program had been in place during Continental, he felt that the results would have been very different. Citing regional meetings with spouses through the new Family Awareness Program, increased use of video recorders, computer networks, and the introduction of viewpoint cards in every issue of Airline Pilot magazine, Duffy took credit for the success of the United Strike and the new militancy and self-confidence rippling through ALPA. He noted that, under his leadership, ALPA had placed pilot representatives on several AFL-CIO councils. ALPA had become affiliated with the Maritime Trades Department of the AFL-CIO and the International Transport Federation, had joined the union label movement, and was advertising the Don't Buy list among its members. With nothing to differentiate Duffy and Ashwood on most substantive issues, the election of 1986 would ultimately turn on matters of personality. But Ashwood urged one rather remarkable change internally, one that might have backfired on him. Insiders knew that Ashwood was unhappy with General Counsel Henry Weiss, and Ashwood let it be known that if he was elected, Alpa's historical connection with the law firm of Cohen, Weiss, and Simon would end. Ashwood had become disillusioned with Weiss while serving as first vice president. He would later come to believe that Alpa was outlawed during the Carl Icahn takeover of TWA, but his core complaint was that Weiss had become too involved in Alpa's internal politics. Ashwood was deeply suspicious of Weiss's role as parliamentarian, particularly some technical decisions in 1982, which Ashwood maintains kept the pilots of recently bankrupt Braniff, who would have supported O'Donnell, from voting. To many Alpa insiders, Ashwood's criticisms of Henry Weiss were jarring. Weiss's service to Alpa dated back to the Banky era, and he had been at the heart of Alpa's courtroom battles for nearly half a century. Weiss was the rock upon which Alpa's legal edifice was built. 
largely owing to Clancy Sayin, Alpa's second president, Henry Weiss and his law firm became inextricably linked to Alpa, serving both as outside counsel and the godfather of Alpa's current legal department. In the mid-1950s, Sayin, dissatisfied with the way Alpa's in-house legal department was handling routine casework, would give Weiss an angry ultimatum. It was a surprising development because Sayin and Weiss were close friends. The raging firestorm of the 1953 Banky ouster, which they had fought as allies, had built a bond between them. At Sayin's pleading, Weiss agreed to supervise the building of a new legal staff for Alpa. With Sayin's backing, Weiss cleaned house, interviewed and hired new lawyers, and reorganized Alpa's administrative procedures as they applied to routine legal matters. Sayin gave Weiss a year to complete the job. The newly restructured Alpa legal department emerged from the chaos of the early 1950s with a new sense of direction. To develop this sense of identification with pilots flying the line, Weiss insisted that Alpa's lawyers be assigned to serve specific airlines and physically dispersed around the country. Although Weiss admitted to having a strong connection to Sayin, Alpa founder Dave Benke first brought Weiss on board. Any confrontational organization, like a union, must necessarily find itself enmeshed in legal snares, which is what brought Dave Benke to Henry Weiss's door in 1946. Weiss was convinced that the airline operators were intent on destroying Alpa after World War II. The post-war surplus of pilots qualified to fly military transports was the operator's ace in the hole. Their effort began on Ted Baker's National Airlines and would eventually culminate in the celebrated strike of 1948. Indeed, Henry Weiss and his law partner, Sam Cohen, became Alpa's lawyers only because the prominent labor lawyer, Henry Kaiser, had quit Alpa because he found Benke difficult to work with. Benke expected a lawyer simply to be a mouthpiece who would parrot statements that Benke himself had written. At Weiss's first legal proceeding representing Alpa, Benke handed him such a statement. Finding it both inappropriate and demeaning, Weiss began editing Benke's prose severely. Benke insisted he stick to the script. Weiss flatly refused. Having lost one prominent labor lawyer with these tactics, Benke retreated and allowed Weiss to do his job. Alpa desperately needed a strong labor lawyer to pursue legal action against Nationals Ted Baker, who was making a shambles of Alpa's collective bargaining contract, refusing to honor parts of it, and threatening to fire any pilot who acted as a union officer. Desperate, Benke turned to his old friend Fiorello LaGuardia, the mayor of New York City, who recommended Henry Weiss. Sometimes, the best way to deal with litigation is to have a legal attack dog to turn loose on opponents. Fortunately, Henry Weiss fit that description. Ted Baker's lawyer in the first round of legal sparring that followed Weiss's hiring was none other than Roy Cohn, who would later achieve notoriety as Senator Joe McCarthy's hatchet man. What began as a temporary legal assignment, a one-time job for a union Weiss never expected to hear from again, would lead him into a parallel life, half spent with the law, the other half with Alpa. Weiss accumulated a vast store of knowledge about Alpa's history, 
much of which does not appear anywhere in the written record. There was practically nothing about the association he didn't know and hadn't seen. Next time on Flying the Line, Alpa's BOD re-elects Duffy in a heated race determined more by personality, style, and hunch than policy. Thank you for listening. This has been Chapter 17, Part 2 of Flying the Line 2 by George E. Hopkins, Copyright 2000. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. To listen and subscribe to more in this series, please check us out online at alpa.org or find us on all major podcast platforms. Until next time, this is the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association International. Production copyright ALPA 2024, all rights reserved.